Welcome to the discussion Overcoming Workforce Disruption Through Strategic Planning, sponsored by Cornerstone. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Steve Dabrowski. He's the Senior Principal for Thought Leadership and Advisory Services at Cornerstone. Sherry Van Sloan is the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Bruce Guype is the Chief Operating Officer at the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, and Chris Mim, Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. It's great to have you all on here this, today. And our topic is workforce, workforce planning, workforce strategizing in a time of great change, maybe a little bit to some degree of a time of stress on the workforce. So what I'd like to begin with, uh, first with our federal guests, is to talk about what is your workforce strategy? How are you developing a workforce and what's effective for you in developing the workforce from the perspectives that you all have. And Sherry, why don't we start with you? Thanks, Tom. Um, happy to be here. It's a great uh, chance to talk about a critical critical time in our history and, and, our, and our workforce issues that are facing all of us, I think, across the federal sector. Um, for the intelligence community, we talked a while ago and before COVID even started, we had a, an initiative going on called the Great Trusted Agile Workforce Initiative. And that was really focusing on thinking about the future workforce, the future of work, and really the future work, workplace that we're gonna actually be able to attract and retain that workforce that we need. So some of those things that we thought we were focusing on and moving forward on code has really taken hold of those and moved them maybe a thousand times faster than we, think we thought they would. So we're really looking across, um, how do we make this agile workforce who works easily uh, in and out of government and can go into private sector and have opportunities that can make them more agile, make them more, you know, focused on getting cutting edge technology, um, a world-class workforce that we're looking for. And so this initiative has really uh, allowed us to push forward on the ability to work with private sector in ways that we never have. Um, we have new legislation this year that allows us to put our folks in for-profit companies, as well as those for-profit company folks coming into the IC workforce to learn more about what we do and understand the federal government better. Um, we realize that this partnership with private sector is critical, and so the better we do this and the better we integrate some of those, you know, technologies they're focusing on that we need to also focus on and that build those partnerships, the more the better. So um, we are really looking to leverage that initiative. We are investing in IT platforms and tools and in new ways to, um, you know, recruit those kinds of skills we're looking for, but also building up the workforce that we have and giving them that exposure and those experiences to reskill. It sounds like you have the expectation then that people will be coming in and out of the agency maybe a little bit more freely than was the expectation in decades past. Absolutely. We know the next generation of workforce that we're targeting does not want to have that 30-year career sitting at one desk working one target. We know they're going to want exposure to new data sets, to new problems, to new challenges. And we, have, we want to make that the norm, that these folks will move around and they will move easily. And it's going to be expected and not the not the unexpected, right? That's going to be the way the workforce is going to work in the future. So we're really looking forward to that more fluid workforce um, and building those skills along the way, that continuous learner development that we're looking for. All right. And Chris Mim, I want to uh, talk to you next because the Government Accountability Office and your job as strategic issues guy, you look at workforce planning in federal agencies but also the GAO is noted for its own workforce planning and treatment because it does end up on the best places to work in the federal government pretty regularly, high up there on the list. So give us uh, your perspective. Well, th thank you, Tom, and, and, uh, and like Sherry and, and Bruce and Steve, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here today and especially to be them, uh, with them on this panel. Um, a, a couple of things that, that we focus on that I think are, are particularly important. One is to, to make sure that each of our employees, and we've certainly looked for this in other agencies as well, has a clear line of sight between what they're working on on a day-to-day -day basis, even though it could be quite operational or into really the, the details of a, of a program or project, how they have a clear line of sight between what they're doing and larger public outcomes that are going to be achieved. We really lean into the motivations that people bring into the public service, which is to be involved in something big and important and that makes a difference for their fellow citizens. And so to the extent that we can have those conversations and really show them 
how they're how what they're working on is is going to lead to a demonstrable improvement. In our case, it would be a, a program or, or or regulatory improvement in agency or a, or a substantive financial savings to the to the federal government. Um, with other agencies, obviously, it's linking up to, to their missions. That's when you get the greatest employee engagement, and that's when you get the the, the really the the greatest work out of people is when when they're they're most engaged. And so we find that to be very important. Two other points, just to underscore exactly what Sherry was saying, and I think they're just spot on, is one making sure that that we develop partnerships and that is that that in in our case it's not just with the with the private sector but it's with other audit organizations at the national level at international level state and locals um so that people can feel comfortable in moving in and out you know from us to the igs or back to the igs or even within the private sector um and then second to into and related to that is making sure that we have that fluid workforce and that that's something I'll, i'll admit that we still have to work on a little bit more at gao and that is bringing people in at the, the mid-career and, and, and uh, perhaps even later in, in their careers, um, we still at times have an orientation of you, you, you come in at early and then kind of work your way through for a while. Um, I think we're making tremendous progress on that, but you know that's still something that we and others need to work on. Yeah, so in the implication there then, Chris, is that the understanding of the mission, the understanding of the, where the agency fits in the panoply and where its mission fits and the overall delivery of the government is maybe the priority thing to instill in people before the specific training for the specific job that they might have, whatever technical or managerial skills they might need. Absolutely, Tom. And when, when, when we used to do back in, the, in, in ancient history, like before March, when many of us did uh, on-site recruitment fairs at universities, um, I was struck that, that how infrequently federal agencies sold the mission. And that, that's really our competitive advantage. And in our case, we're not going to be at a, at a pay standpoint, overly competitive with some of the big top consulting firms in, in the world that, you know, and, they, um, and, and I get that. Um, but what we can sell is the mission. And that's, you know, we certainly do that, but you wouldn't, uh, I would be struck that, you know, some other federal agencies wouldn't do that nearly as well as I thought they could. And I'd almost feel like talking to applicants or people coming to their recruitment table and say, let me tell you a little bit more about what this agency is doing. It's fantastic stuff, you know, and that, um, because that again is where you're going to get people engaged and where they're going to do their, their, their best work for the agency and for themselves. Yeah, that's the old proverb. I'm not pushing a broom. I'm helping put a man on the moon, so to speak. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a very, very powerful story. And from, from everyone I've heard, it's a true one. You know? and, that, uh, um, and so that's, uh, that's exactly it. All right. And uh, Bruce Guype from uh, Office of Special Counsel, very tiny agency, but one with a very important mission and a very big impact on the rest of the federal workforce. So uh, you've been all teleworking too during all of this. And uh, what are some of the workforce development strategies that you pursue, given the very specialized nature and specialized knowledge set that the people making the decisions there need to have. Right. So, I mean, I would start out, I'm, I'm really happy to start out talking about mission because I'd say I've had a 25-year career in the federal government, but never have I been in a place like OSC where I really think that's the driving force behind everyone. And when we do a good job, it just isn't that our job, our office does a good job, but, you know, planes are safer to fly in because we're, we're out whistleblowers are helping us make things safer to fly in. A veterans hospital, people are you know less likely to die because of changes we make. And literally, the federal government gets back hundreds of millions of dollars for every dollar spent at OSC. So we have a really, really good and important mission, and I think that drives our people. As far as workforce planning, I'd say I kind of look at it as three tiers: a long-term, medium-term, and short-term. Um, Long-term, we do a strategic plan like everyone does. So our last strategic plan was um, in 2017. And so we literally looked there and said, okay, where do we need to put more resources? And one of the examples was in our IT, uh, we were moving to an electronic case management system, getting our complaints online, moving our infrastructure to the cloud. So we put it right in the strategic plan that we wanted more people. We put an actual number on it in our IT department. Then in the medium range, um, you know, the yearly budget process right now, we're in the process of looking at 2022, uh, getting that ready for OMB and for Congress. And when we do that, um, this year we've, we've reached out to all of our program units, asked them to tell us not just how many employees they need, the kind of training they need, travel, 
So we really can make an informed argument about what we need. And then in the short term, and that's where being a tiny agency, we have about 130 FTE comes into play. Uh, we just have to be very agile. And, and if we get more than we expect or less than we inspect, expect, then we have to get creative and come up with good solutions to spend that money in a good way. And, and we're an agency that's almost completely FTE. I mean, our, our budget goes almost completely FTE. So we have to get creative move people around, do details, uh, work with outside partners. Um, so we get very creative and very agile once we get into the year we're actually talking about. Okay, interesting. And Steve, let's talk about uh, your perspective and seeing across government from your perch and also having the uh, knowledge coming in corporately on some of the commercial best practices in recruiting and workforce planning. What do you see as the uh, big issues? Sure. First off, thank you for the invitation and, and the ability to, or the, the opportunity to speak with everyone on the, on the session today. I really appreciate it. Um, as Cornerstone uh, is a talent management company, this is something that's really critical to our day-to-day -day operations and, and it's vital to our core. Um, my history with the work in the federal government involved a stint at Treasury Department and head of uh, learning and leadership development at IRS as well. So I have that flavor as well. Um, what we see across the board is there's a couple components that are critical to talent management when we talk about it. And an organization in terms of planning for the future and what this situation that we're in today has really taught us the importance of agility and adaptability and changing some of those things. So change certainly is gonna be one of those things that we wanna probably incorporate into our conversation today. But there are three characteristics that we thought that were really important to an effective talent management or workforce planning strategy. It really starts with defining your organizational needs. So define your organizational needs, develop your talent, and evolve your, your workforce and your leaders for the future. And those are the three components that we believe are important to really effective um, management of workforce planning. It, it, it's becoming critical. What's, what's clear in the private sector versus the public sector is a lot of times what we're spending time doing in the public sector is looking at historical uh, performance as opposed to predicting and moving forward. What this environment has taught us is that we need to get uh, a little bit more looking out the, the, the front windshield as opposed to the rear view mirror in terms of talent management and workforce planning. Uh, so when we talk about defining, we really need to get to starting with skills of the individuals. What does the organization need in order to accomplish its mission? How are we positioning our people for doing that? And how are we developing them at all levels of the organizations? Some of the things that I, I, it's happy, I'm really excited to hear Sherry and Chris and Bruce talk about are how we're leveraging the powers of leaders at all levels across the organization and how are we incorporating them into the overall mission accomplishment and incorporating their workforce needs uh, moving forward. Also, one of the other things that I think is critical that we see across government organizations is this desperate need to identify those high performers, right? So we, we talk about it a lot. Um, I, I don't know that we do a great job of identifying them deliberately, but I think there's some efforts to do it. I think there are ways that we're gonna talk about today that you can get to that workforce planning and uh, incorporating high potential opportunities, stretch assignments, those types of things. Um, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities that we're gonna talk about. And then finally, the, as I started to say, one of the things that this has taught us about is it's no longer enough to just think about what we've done in this performance year or how we've performed thus far. What's really critical is what are we gonna need moving forward? And that goes you know, six months, 12 months, 18 months and start to be able to predict and foresee uh, some of those skills and those capabilities that we're going to need to bring into our workforce, whether it's through our training and development initiatives or it's through our recruiting and, and attracting that talent. So a number of different factors, but I think that that kind of lays out our philosophy on uh, talent management workforce planning. And I know, Chris, that the GAO has looked at these types of topics repeatedly. And how would you characterize lay the uh, the status of the government? Is it generally good at that kind of look ahead and planning type of issues or is there a little bit of room to grow there well i think it's there, there's always room to grow i think it's it's perhaps not surprising across federal agencies we see it's better in the short and in and in, in, in the intermediate term 
um, less good in really the long term. And that is, you know, one of the key things, and, and we've looked internationally at the kind of best practices in, in workforce planning as well, is that the very best organizations are thinking five and 10 and even 15 years out, you know, very often using scenario planning as to what is the future? What are our futures? What could we look like in, in, in 10 and 15 years? What are the skills that we're gonna to need to be successful across those futures? And then let's start recruiting and hiring and training off of those today. And so it's, it's really having a, 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 as Steve was saying, a genuine future oriented and looking out of the, the front mirror or the, the front windshield rather than the rear view mirror. The other point to underscore that's, that Steve was saying is, and I know Sherry and Bruce would agree with this as well, is really integrating workforce planning systematically into the organizational planning and the results that you're trying to achieve for your organization and not having them be stovepiped or standalone efforts. I mean, I, I think in the, in the early years of the GPRA modernization where there were requirements put in place for HR plans to be part Part of the performance plans that agencies were doing, it was pretty evident what was happening, which is that someone in the 11th hour was saying, where's the HR plan? Call HR, get the plan. And it would end up usually being appendix two or appendix three, even having a different font and different graphics and all that sort of stuff. Um, both visually and substantively, it was clear that there wasn't that integration going on. And so we need to be thinking about what does the future look like and asking that question in the context of what is the mission and how we're going to achieve that mission Let's start hiring, recruiting, and working out off of that today to make sure we have the leaders and the staff in the future that are going to be help us be successful. And I want to follow up on those points with our other guests, but this is a good place to take a break. My guests today are Chris Mim, the Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Bruce Guype is the Chief Operating Officer at U.S. Office of Special Counsel. Sherry Van Sloan is the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Steve Dabrowski is the Senior Principal for Thought Leadership and Advisory Services at Cornerstone. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Overcoming Workforce Disruption Through Strategic Planning, sponsored by Cornerstone here on Federal News Network. In the federal government, the work you do is so important. And with the world forever changed, it is critical now more than ever to have the skills and capabilities for your mission today and into the future. To keep pace with disruptive shifts to operations, you and your people need technology solutions for continuous learning and development. Let Cornerstone show you the way. Cornerstone provides accelerated innovation and expanded learning so agencies can quickly adapt and evolve to meet the needs of not only today's employees, but also tomorrow's. CornerstoneOnDemand.com. Welcome back to our discussion, Overcoming Workforce Disruption Through Strategic Planning, sponsored by Cornerstone here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Steve Dabrowski, the Senior Principal for Thought Leadership and Advisory Services at Cornerstone. Sherry Van Sloan is the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Bruce Guype is the Chief Operating Officer at the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, and Chris Mim, Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And before the break, we were talking about the idea of really looking out beyond next year, next fiscal year, and so on to the really long-term needs of uh, workforce development and agency mission delivery. And so I wanted to follow up, uh, Sherry, with you on how the DNI looks way ahead, because Golly, I don't think any group of people operates in a more volatile and changing environment than the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. That's a great point, Tom. And you know, our mission is global, and the problems that we face is, is just you know ever changing and dynamic. So you're right. Um, one thing I would say that we've really come to um, think about more strategically and intentionally is really kind of as we look out in the out years, how do we think about what work we think is going to stay somewhat stagnant for the next three to five, seven years, what work we know is going to diminish or go away completely based on AI, machine learning, and the, and the kind of automation that's coming our way. And then what are the new things we know are coming at us that we have to get ready for now that will be in place in the next three, five, seven years? Um, I'll say that that sounds easy, but strategic workforce planning is really, really hard. It's hard to predict. It's hard to build the models. Um, there are prediction tools and the way to think about this, but no one can say has a crystal ball to see this perfectly. So it's a tough thing to do, but you have to, we have to do it. Um, we got new legislation, the intelligence community did, I think two years ago, that gave us, it's called multi-workforce, I'm sorry, multi-sector workforce. And it allows us to manage 
these resources against our dollars vice positions. And so it's really been a whole flip of the uh, dynamic for the, work, um, the intelligence community to think together from an HR and a finance perspective uh, to really think about how do we leverage our dollars the, the most effective by pulling in, whether it's a government person that needs to do that kind of work, if it's a contractor, or if it's a, maybe a military member, and how do we best spend our resources to really tackle those, those uh, critical skill gaps we know are, are going to come at us. So that's been, a, that's been a whole shift of the way of thinking between uh, HR and finance, but also I would say that we have really come to the table as a strategic partnership to the mission side of the house. If the human capital and finance folks don't understand where mission is going and what's going to drive those changes in mission, we really can't do our job effectively. So it's really building those strategic partnerships within the organization so you're at the table when mission side is talking about those challenges and the things that we need to think about now to do differently. Um, so I would say you know, there's, a lot of been, there's been a lot of investment in human capital tools over the last few years, and we're seeing more of that across the government that, you know, I think for decades maybe, um, you know, kind of the support side of the house and, and the business systems have not been advanced in the way that mission systems have. And so now I think we're really focusing on that because it's critical if we're going to think about the way we, you know, strategically look at our future workforce. And it's probably safe to say, therefore, that even the human capital, human personnel function that they used to call it itself is changing as you go to more strategic planning and strategic looks at what the agency needs and all of the routine things that HR or personnel used to do become automated and self-service. That's absolutely right. We're seeing AI and tools like that taking, taking place of the human there on some of those transactional HR functions. And that allows this HR workforce to really become those strategic partners on the mission side of the house. But we have to invest in those folks and to train them how to think about that and how to think differently when we're thinking about human capital. Um, so that's been a huge shift too. We can't just keep the HR function as it was. Even though things are going away, we've got to invest in those people and really give them the tools they need to be that partner at the table with their mission side of the house. And Steve, you had a comment. I do, and Sherry, thank you so much for bringing up the, the criticality of adjusting our, our workforce strategies when we introduce digital technologies and digital strategies. It is becoming one of the chief drivers of transformation. You add into the complexity of, we need to change with digital transformation and digital strategies, add into the whole COVID situations where we're seeing agencies really flex their creativity muscles, right? So we're, we're having, interviewing skills and, and remote management of teams and stuff that we never thought we were going to be doing introduced into this complexity that we already had experience with the need for digital transformation while balancing security and risk concerns, right? So that's another paramount thing that we're walking the fine line in the federal government. Um, it's not as easy as, as the private sector. Oftentimes they don't have the security constraints that they do uh, in the public sector and that is another factor in what we're able to do but what was really refreshing and exciting to see in the, in the public sector and how we responded to this situation is the creativity and adaptability that we applied to the situation and i think it's going to have a long-term effect on us and bruce how does this apply in a small agency situation well you know i think everything is just magnified in the small agency so like i had mentioned before we had put in our strategic plan to look at beefing up IT. And, you know, with the COVID uh, pandemic happening, and I've noticed this at my, even in my old uh, job at DOJ, it kind of accelerated everything. So we had planned for really since 2017, um, the, the IT uh, infrastructure was part of our COOP plan, continuity of operations. And so in the months leading up to COVID, we really got everything beefed up. We were ready to go paperless we really went or to go virtual. We really went virtual seamlessly in early March. Um, so that's the kind of thing that we have to be agile because we don't have a lot of money being such a small agency to throw around. Um, but I think at OSC and at a lot of other agencies, the COVID situation is gonna really accelerate the push towards paperless, which we're, we're pretty much there at OSC, but a lot of agencies aren't. Um, and then just with, with uh, medium range planning in general, <clears throat> excuse me, um, one of the things I think about is like our hatchback unit. So we, we talk about having to look at the way to staff things. We know every two years and especially every four years, they're gonna get a lot more work because they get complaints during, during the um, election and that's this year. 
So we've also tried to do things. We can necessarily get more money to, to hire more people, but we can uh, rearrange internal, uh, you know, have details and that type of thing. And so we try to make sure that we even it out and, and do workforce planning that way too. Sure. So you might have, that gets to the agility question. You might have people that are specialized in whistleblowers, but you need to be the, deploy them briefly to the Hatch Act unit, slightly different subject, well, actually quite a bit different, but yet yeah. you can have people that can, that can move around. Right. And I think that's good for everyone. You know, it's good for the agency because we can accomplish our mission. And it's also good for our employees because they get extra experience and exposure in different areas. So I think it's it's a win-win, and it's one of those agile type of things in a really tiny agency that you that you do. But I, I I get all good feedback about those types of things when we do it. And Sherry said something I wanted to return to and explore a little bit, and that is that uh, how artificial intelligence and technologies like that are changing work, eliminating some work that people did do so that they can do perhaps higher value work through automating routine types of functionality. But on the other hand, you also hear agencies saying we've got to have artificial intelligence talent come in. And there's several areas of technology development that agencies feel will be important to them. A couple of others that come to mind, the whole evidence-based policy-making initiative has taken many forms, including the use of data, data officers, and how do you inculcate data, which relates to some degree to artificial intelligence and also to, art, to data analysis. Things like customer experience design. These, were, these are the types of words and terms you never heard before in government a number of years ago. Now they're coming in. So the question is, how do these new incoming technologies affect the workforce planning when on the one hand they might eliminate some work for an agency and yet you also need the expertise in those very things. Chris, does that, that must come up a lot. It, it does, Tom, and, it's, it, and what it underscores in a, in a broad sense is the importance of what's often referred to as, as those soft skills in, in making sure that we are recruiting and developing and incentivizing people that are comfortable in an environment in, in which they're, they're going to be dealing with, with evidence, in which they're going to be dealing with customers and partnerships and collaborations and networks. All of that is, is very, very difficult. I mean, we, we did a survey a number of years ago of the chief performance officers in, in each of the major agencies, asking them kind of what they saw as, as some of their skills gaps. Um, overwhelmingly, they said, the, the, they, said they, they needed additional skills in data visualization and then root cause analysis is, you know, with, with, you know, with data. And they said, we gather an awful lot of information in government. What we need is people that are comfortable in presenting that information, discerning the stories, as it were, from that information. If there's a performance gap, identifying what needs to be done in order to in improve performance. Those are all things that, you know, fortunately, many of our, our, you know, our graduate schools in public policy and public administration are training the next generation of students, students on or, or leaders on. Um, but we still need much more of, it, of that within government. And more broadly, as you were saying, is, is that we need people that are, that are comfortable in thinking of customers relationships or even more broadly partnership relationships as to as to how do we work with others in order to achieve the results that we need to achieve nothing that we do in the federal government is going to be done by one program or one agency operating in isolation or at least nothing worthwhile um, it's all going to be done in networks or as sherry was pointing out even across sectors with the with contractors and the the military and civilian working together on programs that's that's something that needs to be trained and needs to be be developed with people um, and so that's a that's a real issue going forward with most agencies that we've looked at. And Bruce? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of piggyback off, off something he said. Um, so first of all, when when Henry Kerner came in, he said one of the, one of the hallmarks of his administration was the old-fashioned customer service, and we had that not just for complainants who were coming in the door, but also between our employees. I think that's helped. But he mentioned um, working with others even outside the agency. So we put together uh, a group of four small agencies, Office of Special Counsel, MSPB, OGE, and FLRA. We call it the big four smalls, and we get together quarterly, and we discuss really what's going on. We, it, it's a pretty open dialogue, um, and so we try to have best practices and figure out ways that we're all, if a lot of times we're all dealing with the same problem that a little tiny agency has to deal with that a DOJ or a VA can deal with easier. 
Uh, but we have, I have a really good example in the past year where that really paid dividends for OSC. Um, since we're so small, we don't have a contracting officer, but we do have a lot of contracts. And so last year, our shared services provider dropped us right in the summer in the middle of a, in the middle of the contracting season. So we reached out to the big four smalls and we got help from them and they helped us get our contracts in, which if you're talking about contracts for, for Outlook and Microsoft products and stuff, the agency stops functioning if you don't have those. So I think that kind of uh, partnership between uh, different agencies and kind of building those uh, friendships and um, networking, it makes a big difference, especially for a small agency. Sure. And Steve, we've talked about these in terms of these inculcating these new technologies in terms of recruitment, but it's also a matter of perhaps upskilling and reskilling the workforce that you do have too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll go back to something I mentioned earlier about the definition of what's important to an organization, right? You got to start there. And, and, and to Bruce's point, you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. There are, it's already kind of been done. There are programs like a partnership for public service leadership capability model that you can use to kind of drive some of the change that we're talking about. The other thing that I think is important to maybe reflect on is how do we actually drive that change that we're, we're seeking? Uh, oftentimes we think it's false to the leadership of the organization. I would argue that we need to push to, to the employees and make it the responsibility of a lot of the employees. One, it does a number of different things. It gets it boots on the ground kind of viewpoint and it also, positions them as the owner of that change culture. And finally, it moves us from a, a telling environment to a talking environment. And I think in today's world, that's important to talk, don't tell. So we're having those conversations. But when we talk about upskilling and reskilling, there's a number of different challenges that are faced with this. Number one is identify, identification of the what, right? So how do we build that? What's important to us as an organization? Uh, how do we then assess our workforce as to what gaps we actually have? Those are big, two big challenges right off the bat. Even if we were to overcome them pretty easily, um, how do we actually get the interventions and the tools that we need to, to address the gaps that we found, right? So what do we do once we find the gaps? And in terms of involving the employees, there is a breakdown in the trust factor that we have to incorporate as well. We have to create the environment where it's okay to share skills and capabilities uh, and realize that that's not the, the, uh, the only power that we have. So the identification of those. And then finally, uh, once you have it set, you're not done yet because you still have to maintain it, right? So it's a constant improvement cycle. So it's, there are a lot of different challenges, but there are a lot of organizations that are out there doing it really well. I came from IRS, as I mentioned earlier. One of the things that we did at IRS uh, really well was we pushed leadership at all levels. And then this is everything from I think I want to be a manager or a team leader or a project manager all the way up to senior executives. And we had development interventions for each one of those levels. Um, and I think that's something that could be leveraged elsewhere and has been leveraged in other agencies as well. So, uh, yeah, I think there are a number of different challenges, but we're seeing some really creative uh, applications of um, technologies and the use of skills and, and, and forecasting capabilities. All right. On that note, we will take a short break. My guests today are Steve Dabrowski, Senior Principal for Thought Leadership and Advisory Services at Cornerstone. Sherry Van Sloan is the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Bruce Guype is the Chief Operating Officer at the U.S. Office of Special Counsel. And Chris Mim, Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Overcoming Workforce Disruption Through Strategic Planning, sponsored by Cornerstone here on Federal News Network. In the federal government, the work you do is so important. And with the world forever changed, it is critical now more than ever to have the skills and capabilities for your mission today and into the future. To keep pace with disruptive shifts to operations, you and your people need technology solutions for continuous learning and development. Let Cornerstone show you the way. Cornerstone provides accelerated innovation and expanded learning so agencies can quickly adapt and evolve to meet the needs of not only today's employees, but also tomorrow's. CornerstoneOnDemand.com. Welcome back to our discussion, Overcoming Workforce Disruption Through Strategic Planning, sponsored by Cornerstone here on Federal News Network. My guests today are Steve Dabrowski, the Senior Principal for Thought Leadership and Advisory Services at Cornerstone, 
Sherry Van Sloan is the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Bruce Kipe is the Chief Operating Officer at the U.S. Office of Special Counsel. And Chris Mim, the Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And before we got to the break, I wanted to make sure that we are good with the question on that idea of bringing in skills related to the new technologies. And Sherry, I guess for the ODNI, that's a matter of that ties in closely with your recruiting tactics. Yes, Tom. So we've done some uh, serious investing over the last year, two years, on how we think about recruiting and going after that diverse talent pool that we're looking for across the country. Um, so we've invested in some great tools to target those kinds of students we're looking for in those diverse areas, to target the kinds of um, studies they're studying, their experiences they're having. So we're really, you know, if you think about diversity and the, the, the real core mission of the uh, intelligence community, if we don't have a diverse workforce, we don't produce the best intelligence for our policymakers. So it has been a critical um, time to look at how we're doing that and invest in tools and technologies that allow us to really do targeted recruitment across the country. So I'm really, I'm really happy with the intelligence community's efforts and really um, putting money where our mouth is when we're talking about recruiting that, that diverse talent that we critically need. All right. And uh, I mean, Bruce, what are you looking at in terms of the specific recruiting function in terms of tools, technologies, and strategies versus the way it was done decades ago or even years ago with the standard online types of platforms? Yeah, we advertise the way most people do uh, through USA Jobs and do that kind of old school type of thing or at least old school for the past 20 years. Um, but then I'd say we have, we have two other ways we do it too. Some of our, our recruiting, a lot of it is in-house for our experienced people because um, if you look at prohibitive personnel practices, and disclosure whistleblower types of things. Even though some other places do it in the federal government, I look at OSC, uh, you know, my unbiased opinion is we're kind of the best and the brightest in the federal government at doing this. So we have a really deep bench, even though we're a small agency, we have a deep bench of people to pick from. However, when we need to go outside, um, I guess there's a couple ways we do it. First of all, we have an extremely robust uh, intern program. Uh, this year, even though we only have about 130 employees, we had about 30 interns this summer. So we get these kids in law school, so they get good experience, we get work out of them, and then we get to kind of see the next generation of people we might want to hire. Um, so that, that's really helpful. And tapped into that to get really skilled, uh, sometimes the areas that are not our program unit, program areas, such as budget or HR. And so we have some of those employees who come and are part of our, uh, you know, we hire them. They're actually here as an employee or sometimes we get them coming through uh, as a rotation during the PMF program. Well, Chris, are there best practices for that decision tree with respect to going outside for talent or developing the talent you have in house? And I guess outside can mean outside of government but it can also mean outside of your own agency. Yeah, the, the, the general rule of thumb is, is that if you, if you have a, a work requirement, that's gonna be an enduring work requirement for the agency, that is you know, core to its mission, that it's, it's gonna be an enduring part of it, um, it probably makes sense to think about bringing it in-house um, with, with some exceptions, and that is if there's, you know, a, a, a pretty thick competitive market for the outside talent. So example, for example, like many other organizations, a large part of our IT function in GAO is, is supplied by contractors. Um, but certainly the day-to-day the -day mission requirements that we have, that is, it's an ongoing requirement, that we find more efficient and more effective to be dealt with in, internally within, uh, within GAO. One of the other things, and this is it gets to some of the, the earlier question, uh, Tom, about uh, recruitment strategies, is what, what we find is that if you're just showing up at the job fair, if that's the only time that, you know, in, in our case, we typically recruit from graduate programs at universities. If the only time that you show up is at the graduate job fair, um, you're really missing the plot. You, you have to be establishing ongoing relationships um, with these universities and including providing speakers for, for courses or capstone projects for, for the students, because that's really where you begin to start developing those bonds with the, with the universities and identifying potential talent. 
We also have in the GAO a very uh, uh, aggressive um, internship program. In fact, somewhere between two thirds to 80% of our, of our new hires are people that had gone through our, our internship program. And then a, a final point, and, and Sherry touched on this that was so important, is making sure that your recruitment effort is really tapping into the, the incredible diversity of the country and that we're bringing in, uh, in employees that, that reflect America. Um, and that also requires us to have an inclusive culture once they come in, because people can come in, we can recruit for a diverse workforce, but if they're turned off by a, a, a hierarchical or old school culture, they're going to leave as they probably should. And so, because it, would, it wouldn't be fulfilling, what we need to do is make sure that we have a culture that is, that is open and systematically draws on the talents that everyone is bringing in, the experiences and the backgrounds. That's how we're going to be most effective as an organization. And Sherry? Gosh, Chris, you, you hit the nail on the head there with inclusivity is critical. If we're not building that culture of inclusivity in our workforce, word gets out. We're not going to be able to retain folks if, and we're not going to be able to attract the right folks if we're not building that culture within. Um, but one other thing I wanted to say about when you think about technology on not just recruiting that new talent, we're using things like virtual interview platform. So folks don't have to travel to come to interview for us, right? There's a virtual way to do this. And we're using AI to kind of determine what, what that looks like for the right, the best fit, the best person for the best fit for the best job. We're using tools like that as well. So it's not so cumbersome on that new talent that we know that wants to use those kind of tools. Um, but we're also looking internally to our folks inside that are already in the workforce, that are in the trusted workforce, the intelligence community. We've got to invest in them as well and give them opportunities to bring that Bring those data savvy skills that we talked about up to a level where they're competitive across across the their their component to make sure that they're um, you know being able to be you know, skilled up and, and developed in ways that will make them competitive for new jobs that are coming at us. So I think we really have to take this as a two pronged approach. It's not about attracting that new talent because I think we've got a lot of investment and things going on in that in that space that I'm really proud of. Um, but it's also we've got to continue to develop that internal workforce up because we cannot always recruit from the outside. There's so much goodness within if we just continue to give them opportunities and nurture that workforce that we have today. And so, Steve, is there a way to systemize that decision making where do we go with recruiting people to bring in for the talent we need? Do we try to reskill or upskill people that we have? And I guess in some cases, and this is true of private industry, also, as much as government, do we just simply hire it through contracting? And is there a way to maybe make that decision process more effective? I don't know that I'm going to be able to give you the, the silver bullet to that thing. I think that's an individual organizational component that you're going to decide what the requirements are, what the skills are that you have currently on, on, on staff versus what it is you need and what's the upskilling challenges look like. Is it possible to upskill or reskill? You know, there, there are some tough questions there. Um, I, I think it's also important to, to hit on a couple points like Chris mentioned and Sherry followed up on, on this notion of diversity and inclusion. It's really uh, empowering to see the organizations that are taking these initiatives seriously and incorporating them into their talent management initiatives. But we're seeing a movement going from diversity and inclusion to equity and belonging. And that's really empowering when we get into some of the conversations and back to the, the, the point I made, we're moving to more of a talk, don't tell environment. And I think that has implications. And one final point I did want to make about some of the recruitment discussions that we've actually had. And I had this philosophy as a federal manager before, but it wasn't widespread. Uh, the, the federal government is, is primarily headquartered in Washington, D.C. And so therefore, we've assumed that our talent pool is within the geographical constraints of Washington, D.C. Um, or whatever the headquarter environment is, right? So uh, it, the COVID situation and this current environment has taught us is that our talent pool is much bigger. That notion of my direct reports must be in the same office that I'm in, I think is kind of in the rearview mirror as, an, as a primary idea. What, it, what this situation has done is it's shown us it is possible. And this is true not only for the public sector, but certainly the private sector. They thought that their, their uh, profits were gonna be gouged because they aren't able to perform, but, but they, they seriously have overcome. Talk about faith in the human capabilities and creativity. 
I just think it's an important point not to miss is that that talent pool has become exponentially bigger because we're allowing geographically dispersed applicants to apply and, and maybe not be uh, in the office so much. Yeah, I think that we've all learned that uh, different modes of working actually do work. And many agencies have reported, I've talked to a number of managers that say that their productivity is up and they have specific metrics to show how it's up. And I've I talked to one very hard-boiled manager, a leader of a component of a large agency, army veteran of a career who's completely turned 180 degrees on his view of telework and how that can help the agency. So maybe this gets into the even bigger question. If you roll that in, that kind of flexibility of where people work with the diversity question of do they feel accepted and can they rise according to their talents and skills and, and hopes and desires, uh, that is, how do we make our agencies places that people want to work? And the third element, as Chris mentioned very early, and that is selling the mission of the agency. So maybe we can wind up in the time we have remaining with, how do you make sure that people want to work here at my agency? And uh, Sherry, we'll return to you. Right, so that's a that's an ongoing question and discussion I think, for all of us. I think for the intelligence community, our mission is one of the coolest ever, right? We have the, one of the most important missions, I, I believe, with the national security umbrella, right? So it, mission continues to sell itself, and it will. But I think the idea that you know you, you've got to be able to create that culture of inclusivity, making sure that folks know when they come in the door, they're going to be accepted as they are. They're going to be able to come to the table and voice their perspectives, their opinions, and they're going to be heard, and they're going to be a valued asset to the, to the overall product of the organization. Um, I, don't, I think, you know, some of the things we talked about with, during COVID with the IC Chico Council, which is all the, you know, heads of HR across the community is really, you know, what we found with COVID, and I think we're going to see in the future is, you know, technology is not going to be the stumbling block to create an idea where folks understand we're, we're really leaning forward to find new ways to do business. It's going to be the culture that we build inside that's going to allow us to stretch. Because I think right now, and somebody mentioned previously, the culture we have today might be a little rigid in the sense of, you know, telework or working remotely doesn't really work. I need to see my people at the desk every day. We've got to really move on from that. And I think culture is going to be one of the hardest things we have to crack because I think that technology is there, it's available. We have to incorporate that and invest in that. That's not going to be the hardest part. I think that culture that we build with leadership at every level to think about innovation, creativity, and really leaning forward to think about the future of our workforce. And it would, it's probably fair to say that the intelligence community has found and some elements of the military have found that even where it was absolutely axiomatic that you have to do this work only in a skiff and only on site, that there are technological solutions to that even, and uh, maybe not universal, but to some degree people can be a little bit more flexible and therefore the whole work-life balance question, which can be difficult in that type of environment, has been maybe softened a little bit. Right, so you know, I'll go back a little bit to the Right Trusted Agile Workforce Initiative, RTAL. Um, one of the moonshots of that initiative is uh, out of the skiff and beyond the beltway. And it really is thinking about, is the work we do really classified? Is part of that life cycle of work not classified? Can we do that work elsewhere? And if we can, let's get creative about where, we, where the talent pools are across the country, let's tap into that in different ways than we ever have before. So I think COVID has really just kind of pushed us forward on this and we're really leaning into, you're right, maybe not everything has to be done in the skip and let's take advantage of that creativity out of the skip wherever we can. Absolutely. All right, and uh, Bruce, a comment? Yeah, I mean, I think I already talked about OSC's mission and how I think our employees, it really drives them and the, the agency uh, punches above its weight has a disparate impact on good for good uh, for the country and the tax dollars, taxpayer dollars. Um, what I'd say after that about having people wanting to work here is that I think it really starts with leadership and leadership show, uh, here has shown that it cares. We talked about the response to COVID and um, I know when Henry was on your show, he talked about Wellness Wednesdays, where we've had on Wednesdays, we've had yoga programs, meditations. Today we're having one CPR training. Um, we've done things back when we could things together, like go to NAS games, go to trivia. 
Um, I think we've really tried to make sure our employees know that every year when we have the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, that we don't just do it and say, Yahoo us, we, we scored well like we did last year, but we look at what we hear in that, those survey results and try to make positive change based on that. Um, and, then, and then what's always very important to everyone's work-life balance, and I think OSC does a really great job of that. I think COVID, once again, is accelerating that for the entire government. So, All right, and Chris, we've got about 30 seconds left, so I will give you the final comment on how do I make my place the place people want to work. Well, we've actually done some statistical analysis looking at the engagement scores on best uh, for uh, the employee viewpoint survey. Many of the key factors or quick questions have already been discussed here. That is having meaningful two-way performance discussions between an employee and their first-line supervisor, making sure that that relationship works. Um, having open, transparent, continuing two-way communication between management and staff, making sure that there's a balance between work life and and, uh, and family uh, responsibilities, um, and then making sure that people have meaningful opportunities for input and that they understand, we all understand, the right to have input doesn't mean the right to prevail, but it does what we are looking for, an opportunity to have input. If you create those types of cultures and in which you're basically treating people as adults, as we would want to be treated, you're going to be a successful organization. You're going to be a best place to work. All right, good note to end on. I want to thank today's guests. Chris Mim is the Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Bruce Guype is the Chief Operating Officer at the U.S. Office of Special Counsel. Sherry Van Sloan is the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Human Capital at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And Steve Dobrowski, Senior Principal for Thought Leadership and Advisory Services at Cornerstone. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Cornerstone. Thank you for listening to the discussion Overcoming Workforce Disruption Through Strategic Planning, sponsored by Cornerstone on Federal News Network. In the federal government, the work you do is so important. And with the world forever changed, it is critical now more than ever to have the skills and capabilities for your mission today and into the future. To keep pace with disruptive shifts to operations, you and your people need technology solutions for continuous learning and development. Let Cornerstone show you the way. Cornerstone provides accelerated innovation and expanded learning so agencies can quickly adapt and evolve to meet the needs of not only today's employees, but also tomorrow's. CornerstoneOnDemand.com.